Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Uh, Regardless of when you hear this recording, uh, today is the 17th of March, so uh, we're we're all celebrating St. Patrick's Day here, although there aren't any, well, there's there's some water, but there are no beverages on the table uh, as of yet. Um, but uh, my name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Michael Zarling. And our guest today is a pastor from Kenosha at New Life, the newly merged Wells Congregations in Kenosha, Pastor Steve Newman. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Or you also go by Max. Yep. There are professors that have no idea who Steve Newman is because <laughs> Max is such an ingrained nickname, so... All right, and Max and I were classmates at Northwestern College and the seminary. One of the stories I wanted you to share, Max, was your first call. And I was just sharing this story with Jeremy and Abby the other day, but I think our listeners deserve to hear the story about what was included in your first call in in Buffalo. Yeah, we got assigned to uh, just 30 miles south of Buffalo, New York, and when we pulled into the driveway of the church in the Parsonage, we pulled back to where the Parsonage garages were, and of course there was a big crowd waiting to, to greet the new pastor and his young wife, and so they took us in and gave us a tour of the house, and as we came out to the car, they said, okay, so now there's two garages here. The right side is yours. The left side, however, let, let's show you what's in there. And so they took me in and they showed me a huge tractor that has a big uh, cab on it and a big snow thrower on it. And they said, Pastor, this is your equipment for the winter months here in, in uh, south of Buffalo. So, so basically from about September through May, I had a snowplow ministry and it was actually bigger than my car was. So uh, I spent a lot of hours on that thing. But I, I also heard the story of how you got out of snowblowing. <laughs> <laughs> so after the first winter that we were there, it was, you know, time for the thaw. And so I had blown snow what I thought was for the last time. So I set it out in the sun so that it would kind of get the ice out of the augers and stuff like that. And I noticed that getting in and out of it, there was a uh, kind of a rattle on the on the handle in the inside of the cab. And I saw that the the screw was loose. So I figured, well, you know, I'm not the handiest guy in the world, but I can tighten a screw. So I went and got my multicolor neon uh, starter tools that I had been given and uh, went out to try to tighten up the uh, the screw on the, the handle. And I accidentally slipped off and stuck the uh, equipment or the uh, uh, screwdriver through the cab. And so I had to, it went through the, the heavy plastic that was on there. So I had to go to the voters meeting that night and tell them that I had ruined the cab on their uh, big tractor. And uh, they promptly came and took all of my tools away and said, Pastor, that's what trustees are for. You call us if you ever need help with things like that. So, and did you have to still snowblow after that? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Okay. That never stopped. But, um, but they did confiscate my, my tools, which was okay. good for Okay, well, that was a good involved, attempt, though. So, yeah. So they just didn't want you making the repairs on the machine. That's what they didn't want me doing. They didn't want me breaking any. They didn't stop helping, Pastor, I think, is what the... Uh, response was what you could have pushed the line on what to what extent do you want me to stop helping because i can i can stop helping with the snow blowing too if you want yeah they, they made it clear that that was a very good contribution to the cause so they yeah. appreciated that 
So uh, how did you get the nickname Max? I was actually visiting North, uh, Northwestern Prep when I was in eighth grade. I was going to do a sleepover and go to class the next day like everybody does. And I got out of the car with my parents being dropped off. And a couple of junior uh, guys were walking past and they saw me and they said, that looks like Max Dugan. And so next year when I came back as a as a freshman to prep, of course, they were the seniors that initiated me, remembered me and labeled me as Max Dugan. And it stuck all the way through. So, yeah, you're, you're going to have to help me out on Max Dugan. Do you know do you know Max Dugan? Well, it's from a movie. I think it's from Mad Magazines or something. It's yeah, it's a it's a bumbling, heavy set, you know, get gets in his own way sort of a doofus is the word I would use. So, <laughs> so well, and you, I lived up to it. You keep looking. I'll Google it. <laughs> did, did you have to uh, become a a Bills fan? Again, God's sense of humor. I went into my first call, and Mike can attest to this from being with me in college and some, being one of the biggest Miami Dolphins fans in the entire world. And so he dropped me into the shadow of Rich Stadium, our arch nemesis. Good story. We were actually in town for all of 18 hours, and we were going to the bank, my wife and I, to set up our banking accounts there. And I would, because we were moving in and getting the house settled, I had on an old Dolphins shirt. And we were in line waiting and a sweet lady came in behind me and was talking with my wife. And I turned around and she looked at my shirt and she said, how dare you? And she got out of line and left. So, so yeah, that's uh, I would, I did not become a Bills fan. No, I don't know. This says Max Dugan returns and it stars uh, <clears throat> Donald Sutherland and Matthew Broderick. Hmm. So pretty big names. Fantastic. Uh, I'll have to look at later on what, what kind of score it has on Rotten Tomatoes, but not that you really care. 71%. And this is a, this is the name of a character. This yes, isn't an this actor. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, you don't look like any of these guys on here, but, <laughs> oh, well. Donald Sutherland, huh? That's well, nice. you'd have to remember this is the eighth grade version of him. There you go. Looks, there you go. Oh, that's like, true. I'm well, well aged now. Yes. Yeah. Well, knowing Max, he, he still had a beard back in eighth grade. <laughs> no comment. So what is your best story from college of being Michael Zarling's classmate? Oh, there are so many. Zarling losing in cards. Uh, Zarling. It's, he remembers that because it happened once <laughs> in four years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, uh, we we had a lot of shared. There was a classmate of ours because we would play sheep said, and it would be no money exchange hands. It was all Max just took the sheet, and then you would pay up later on. But there was one of our classmates that would uh, he. I don't know if he ever if he won or something, but you know when he did win, most of us didn't care because you're winning twenty five cents, a dollar twenty five, whatever. But he would walk around. I've got the sheet. <laughs> So that we would pay up. Give me your 55 cents. Yeah. I've got the sheet. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of, because there's nothing to do in Watertown. I don't know what it's like in New Ulm, but there's definitely nothing to do in, in Watertown. So, yeah, Friday night, Saturday night, playing sheep's head until two I, in the when morning. I, when I was at prep there, there was a movie theater with all of three screens, I think. <laughs> Did they, they have movie theater in your day? 
There was one that we had a theater that had one screen in our day, yeah. So Yeah, I do remember going, it was one of the rare times that we went as a bunch of us to go to the theater. We saw Robin Williams in, in the one where he's a professor. The Dead Poets. Dead Poets Society. Yeah. So we went and saw that one. Yep. And then, but one of the things that I, I distinctly remember was going to the, uh, well, the knockoff blockbuster and picking out a movie. And it's like going with your family to go pick out ice cream. You know, because you can never decide, and so you just get on get vanilla, so that everyone can agree on it. And it's the same thing, like five guys trying to decide on what movie, what action flick, or whatever. And then we would we would settle on something. Oh, I, you know, kind of bland. Uh, yeah, or just pretty lame. Uh, the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> I remember seeing that one. Just B-rated horror movies and things like that. So where else have you served besides Buffalo? Was in Buffalo for 10 years and then going to be 17 years here in Kenosha. So I vickered out in Albany, New York, uh, but otherwise just those two congregations since I'm ordained. So. so you've had a lot of experience in New York State. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the man that I vickered for was the mission board chairman. So the mi- mission board and mission uh, work has been part of my my background. Um, the congregation I served in Buffalo was just coming off of subsidy from being a mission. Um, and then after we got off about three years later, I actually was uh, appointed to the mission board and served out there for five years working with missions down in Virginia. So I, I worked with a lot of congregations that were, you know, just getting getting started and going through the growing pains of advancing. And uh, so, yeah, it was, was very much part of my, my experience. So, Max, how is it that you came to be a Dolphins fan? <laughs> it's one of those things that uh, is so stupid when you hear it. But um, my mother went to J.C. Penney's when I was in, like, fifth grade, and she found some long sleeve tees on sale. Uh, she picked one up that was the Washington Redskins and one that was the Miami Dolphins. And uh, the Miami Dolphins one had orange sleeves. And so I grabbed that one so my brother couldn't have it. And the rest is history. Then I started looking for them when I heard about football. And, of course, they drafted this gunslinging quarterback named Dan Marino, best quarterback to ever play the game. Um, and so the rest is history from there. So so it was the orange sleeves. The orange sleeves got my attention, absolutely. And would you consider yourself still to this day to be a Dolphins fan? Again, another good story. No, this, this tells you a lot about me, in fact. Um, I always said to the guys in school when I – walked around with my Dolphins coat and my Dolphins memorabilia. Somebody said, are you going to be a Dolphins fan till you die? And I said, from, of course, going to school with guys from other states, I will be a Dolphins fan until they slap me in the face and pick a Michigan University quarterback. And when they picked Chad Henney to be their quarterback, I packed up all my Dolphins stuff, put it in a box, and have never gone back. I turned back to my other team, which is the Packers, so... But uh, an interesting side note is the first time that Max met Nikki, she was wearing orange sleeves. <laughs> he's, he, that's what he's drawn to. Yeah, that's, that's what, what he's it's all about. To. So, Max, you were talking about being at Mount Zion mm-hmm. when you came to Kenosha, which is now part of New Life. Yep. So if you want to talk to our listeners about the merger, everything that was involved in that, the, the time frame, because we did our merger the same time you guys were, mm-hmm. 
to finish up the same time, but you had been working on it a lot longer, and there's a lot more involved with than just two congregations. Yeah. Really, one of the things that went into our merger started already when I was holding the call to come to Mount Zion. Um, I asked uh, the leaders of the congregation that called me when I received the, the call packet, I asked them what the relationship was like with the other Wells churches, knowing that there were three other Wells churches right in Kenosha. And I basically got the response that, unfortunately, is way too common. Not There wasn't a lot of relationship. I mean, the guys got along at conferences and stuff, but... You know, they didn't work together. They didn't, you know, do anything like that. And, and what's the distance between those congregations? A stone's throw. I mean, again, they're not that far apart. Well, Dan Marino throw. Well, that too, yeah. But, but, but where I was serving out east, my nearest neighbors were, you know, Rochester was two hours to the, to the east. Toronto was two hours to the north and probably down in Pennsylvania, another two hours to the next congregation. And so... I was on the far-flung uh, edge of our district. Anytime I went to conference, it you know we had to rent a vehicle and stay overnight, and it was hours drive to get to to be with the brothers, and uh, that was a real blessing for my family, of course, to be able to to have those experiences. But finding out that these guys didn't do anything together, that they didn't work together, you know, I talked to them right away and said, you know, what are the chances that, you know, if I come to town, I'm going to want us to to work on some things together because uh, the good news to that was uh, the guys were pretty much my vintage. The guys that were at Bethany, one of them is our classmate, Dave Pagel. Uh, another one is is was in my brother's class a couple of years behind me, uh, Kevin Hunley. Uh, so again, there were a lot of younger guys. There was a younger guy at uh, Frieden's, uh, Tom Meissner, uh, who was actually living in Mount Zion's uh, vicarage house, you know, right on the property. So I got to know him pretty quickly. Um, and so pretty quickly, we started working on just getting together, getting to know each other, supporting each other as 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 brothers Um District former district president uh, Dave Richo used to to laugh all the time. We used to ride together to every conference we went to. Um, we would pull into the parking lot at conference, and and all the guys in Kenosha would come barreling out of a minivan, and uh, we all sat together at lunch and stuff like that. So, again, that's really where it started. We really intentionalized ministry support of one another. Uh, and then from there, you know, we, we started a youth center together, Oasis Youth Center in Kenosha. All the congregations were involved in doing that. We, we started having joint services for Ascension and New Year's and things like that. I'll never forget our first joint Ascension service over at Frieden's. Um, there was an older gentleman after the service was over. We were shaking hands uh, at the back, and he grabbed my hand with both of his hands, and there, there were tears coming out of his uh, his eyes, and he said, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have lived in Kenosha all my 70-some years. I have never been in this building because mm. I'm, a, I'm a member of one of the other Wells churches. So um, the, the actual merger itself probably was, was the last three or four years before we actually merged the, uh, the congregations into one, um, with especially the last two years being the, the actual time frame, and here's what we're working on, and here we're having listening sessions with the congregation to talk about different aspects of ministry. Uh, one of the big selling points of, of merger in ministry, as you well know, um, is get rid of duplication of efforts. Good example, we've got, I think we've got nine 
public school confirmation students right now at uh, New Life that are going to be either confirmed this spring or are going to be finishing their first year and then getting confirmed next year. With each congregation of the four that were in town having one or two, you know, so again, now we've got a system set up where where all nine of them are being taught by one pastor each week rather than, you know, three or four of us pastors, you know, teaching one or two each week. So we just started talking to people about what the benefit of doing some of these things together would be, plus getting to some of the things that we didn't have a chance as individual pastors of individual congregations to do, um, specifically working proactivating working with young adults and and high school age uh, members urban outreach you know here we are in in the city of Kenosha and uh, two of our congregations are smack dab in in inner city uh, situations with a third you know right on the the verge of it and yet none of us had really done a lot of Uh, urban ministry whatsoever because it's time intensive and by the time you're all doing your funerals and your weddings and your confirmation classes and your bible classes and and everything else there's just no time for some of these things so so we 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 as pastors sat down and we really thought it through and worked it through we got together as pastors you know like every two to four weeks at most and we would study together we had a study club where we went over the gospel lesson. Well, we did that weekly before we actually started having these every two weeks where we were making strategy sessions and talking about what this could look like. Uh, and then we brought the leaders into it. We held joint council meetings for over a year where we kind of sold the idea to the leadership. Uh, then we we put together a team of, of congregational members from all the different campuses, and they then worked on on talking through all the different areas of ministry. Then we took it to the constituency itself. We had listening sessions for, well, it was should it would have been a year, but COVID, of course, came in there and kind of threw some of those plans off. But um, yeah, it it absolutely was a long process of getting to know each other and getting people comfortable with the reality that we're on the same team. We're all going to spend eternity together. Maybe we should start learning how to work together uh, now. Yeah, and I appreciate that. A couple of reasons. One is. Uh, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be the guest speaker for a Lutheran Women's Missionary Society and talking about the merger and multi-site here. This week, I got an email from a gentleman and asking me some questions about mergers and multi-sites. And he said, uh, well, I'm from uh, Richfield. And I didn't look real close. He said, well, I can come up. You know, I'm a mission board chairman. And then he said, well, we appreciate you wanting to come. We're Richfield, Minnesota, hmm. which is six hours <laughs> away. But uh, just that mindset of, like you said, the duplicating of of ministry, and you know, and talking with another pastor who's north of here, uh, in their area, they probably have like nine congregations. Uh, four of them uh, are dual parish, so one pastor for two locations. And they, they're talking about these kinds of things like mergers because they've had churches in that area close. And what they found is those members, they're not uh, acclimating into the other congregations. They're just gone. Yep. Because they never went, like your seven-year-old man, they never went to one of the other churches that's a mile or two down the road. So they don't know anything about it. 
Today's gospel comes from John chapter 9, selected verses. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that God's works might be revealed in connection with, me, with him. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. They brought this man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man told them. I washed and now I see. Then some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, How can a sinful man work such miraculous signs? There was division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? The man replied, He is a prophet. They answered him, You were entirely born in sinfulness, yet you presume to teach us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. When he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of God? Who is he, sir? The man replied, That I may believe in him. Jesus answered, You have seen him, and he is the very one who is speaking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he knelt down and worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. So, Max, what was wrong with the disciples' assumption, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's the natural reaction that we think when bad things happen in our life, God is punishing us. And, and as Jesus points out, that is not the case. This was an opportunity for, for God to to highlight his presence and what he was going to do through this man. But unfortunately, that's how many, many people in this world think. Yeah, I'm talking in my sermon on this text, you know, beginning about karma. One of the things I learned was that karma, the word itself means action. You know, that you do one action, you're going to have another action that's going to follow it. And it's an age-old uh, false theology that Job's friends believed in, that Jesus' disciples and the people of his time believed in. So I was going to ask you guys, have you noticed this with your people? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's very, very common when people have had some tragedy touched. You know, why is God doing this to me, right? We, he must be punishing me for something that I did in my life or for my past mistakes or whatever else. So, you know, as a pastor, I... I anticipate that they're thinking that way, and I try to head that off at the pass right away and let them know again. And this is such a great text to show this man's blindness was something that was going to be an opportunity, right, for Jesus to highlight his power and who he is as the, the promised Messiah. Uh, and so, you know, maybe the fact that you're going through whatever it is you're going through and the fact that you're going to be laid up in a hospital bed is because you're going to be talking to the person in the in the bed next to you or you're going to be you know I've heard many stories about how uh d doctors or 
uh, anesthesiologists and the like have been impressed with with uh, some Christians faith and how they were so calm facing what they were facing, you know. Absolutely, God allows these things to come into our life for his purposes, and part of that purpose is to give us an opportunity to, to point others to him, right? Have you noticed those kinds of things, maybe specifically, Jeremy, with teens? Because Max and I, we've dealt with you know the, the shut-ins. Well, anyone, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's the older Adults. people that we're, we're with. So can you think of that kind of thinking infecting our young ones too? I I haven't. Uh, part of that could be that I've not had a whole lot of experience with teaching high school yet. Uh, but also, I, su- I suspect that part of it is because in order for somebody to say, I think that God is doing this to me because of, uh, you know, something bad I did in my life. First of all, I think that comes after a lot. You've experienced a lot more of life. Uh, and, and then the other thing is... Um, saying something like that out loud, even to somebody that you trust, like a pastor, is a, a sign of, it's, it's being very vulnerable. And uh, high schoolers do not like to be very vulnerable. I don't think they would say it out loud uh, unless there was a really strong bond of trust. And even then that would be a, a struggle. So Jesus had said earlier in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here, Jesus again refers to himself as a light of the world. So Jeremy, how is Jesus that light? He uh, enlightens our... Or did you just... This is like the second time you've thrown a question like this about... Uh, in recent memory of our podcast recordings that I think... Are you, are you trying to get another pun in on my last name? I am not. Jesus is the light, the lightning of... No, that would, um, see, I'm very careful that that might sound sacrilegious if I said lightning of the world. Yeah, that would. Um, I'm not opposed to it necessarily, <laughs> but uh, what is what does light do? It uh, prevents you from uh, tripping and falling and hurting and killing yourself. Uh, you can see where you're going, and uh, that's that's what Jesus does. He makes so much more sense of life, uh, even the sufferings, even the bad things and the painful things. Uh, become a lot more meaningful when you look at them in connection with Christ. And so that's that's how he's the light. One of the things that I had thought of when I was teaching this last Sunday was, oh, my youngest daughter, Belle, we learned early on, maybe when she was in preschool, kindergarten, that she had issues with her vision. We learned much later that her older sister, Abby, had the same same problems, that the way the the doctor explained it was that their eyes just became tired and they couldn't see. I'll actually talk about this in the children's devotion this Sunday. I've got a a blurry sheet of paper. I asked the kids, how many of you can read? And they'll raise their hands if they can read, but they can't read this because it's, it's words, but they're on top of each other. And that's the way the doctor explained it, that he had to uh, show us, how to train her eyes to be able to see again. And that's what Jesus is doing, I think, uh, with this man, obviously, with the physical blindness, but then uh, as the light of the world, teaching us uh, to be able to see him with a spiritual sight. So, Max, most of the miracles that Jesus performs, especially the healing ones, he just speaks. Maybe sometimes there's a touch, but here there's you know, divine spit and and uh, dirt to make mud. 
why do you think he uses mud in this instance? That's a, again, we don't we don't know for sure, of course, because we're not told. But uh, you know, the fact that this would definitely be a more personal thing that that he was gonna, you know, there's gonna be a touching, there's gonna be a uh, there's going to be a process that 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 is gone through here that Jesus does with the spitting and the mud making and the putting it on the eyes and the telling him go and wash that is is going to take away any question later for this man for sure that this was a coincidence or, or something else that was happening that definitely Jesus was the architect of what was happening here and that he was using uh, a tool or an instrument you know the the man was blind but he could hear. So when Jesus spits, I mean, he's going to pick up on that. And and if he could, you know, when when people are blind, uh, we we knew a man that was blind out east and he he could tell if you would bend down and tie your shoe. I mean, he was able to tell his his other senses were so attuned that he could pick up. So uh, this man would have no doubt known that Jesus bent down and grabbed some some dirt, you know. So, again. Uh, the fact that that Jesus is using this hands-on attention, that he is the author of what is happening here, I think is going to be very helpful and important for this man with what's coming afterwards, right? Whenever I, I teach or preach on this text with Jesus spitting, I always like sharing this story from Paul Reiser in his book, Couplehood. Uh, he writes about mother spit. He says, I saw a kid who had some dried up food on his face. His mother took out a tissue, spit on the tissue, and rubbed it into the kid's face. This goes on in communities around our country on a daily basis. It's disgusting, but it sure does work, doesn't it? There's something in mother saliva that cleans like nobody's business. All women, once they give birth, their enzymes change, and saliva becomes Ajax. It'll clean anything, a baby's face, a countertop, a Buick, you get enough mothers, you could do a whole car in 30 to 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what you were saying too, Max, uh, you know, I liken it to here Jesus is that ma- master potter. You know, that just as the triune God formed man out of mud in the beginning of creation, so now Jesus, the God-man, is uh, recreating his fallen creation. But what else is interesting here, Jeremy, is not just that Jesus uses mud, but I think it's interesting that Jesus puts the mud on the man's eyes and then he leaves. Why do you think he did that? Who leaves? Jesus he, leaves. Okay. He, well, he also sent the man. Well, yeah. So he to, sent the man to the pool, but in the meantime, it sounds like Jesus is gone. He did not make himself available to the man right. immediately after he got... He's not walking with him to the pool and hanging out and talking with him because the yeah. Pharisees talked to him. So uh, a couple of things come to mind. One of them would be uh, kind of like uh, you talk about mothers, and, and if I jump from human mothers to mother birds, uh, nudging the baby bird out of the nest to teach him to fly... Uh, that could be something Jesus has in mind here that uh, I'm not just going to be there uh, visibly all the time to answer all of your questions. So why don't you take some practice in uh, dealing with these objections of the enemies of the Pharisees? Uh, so uh, that could be part of it. Um, it, it, uh, it, it could also be... Uh, I forgot the other thing I had coming to mind. Well, I was wondering, too, just knowing the way the story ends, that 
it doesn't appear that this man had faith until Jesus shows up again. Oh, I think it, the other point I wanted to suggest was that Jesus already knew that he had uh, had some trouble with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in the past, and uh, he didn't want to create more trouble by being visibly present there to agitate them with his miracle working. So uh, just letting the man speak for himself might be a safer bet for the man, at least. Yeah, and then he does that, and then when Jesus shows up there later on, and like you would have said, Max, uh, he can— maybe pick out Jesus from his voice, although he doesn't seem to recognize him right away. Uh, but he, I think that this man probably never heard about Jesus because he's a blind man. He's probably staying in one place, uh, may never have heard him preach and so forth. So he doesn't know who he is until Jesus is standing in front of him. And I just, I think a lot of people view conversion you know, being brought to faith as like an immediate thing, like a Saul to Paul type thing. But even there, that's three days being blind and so forth. I think the Holy Spirit most times is working slowly and gradually with people. And here, this is probably several hours. Something else that I noticed that Jesus seems to be healing more and more on the Sabbath. You know, he's got six other days of the week that he could be healing on. Why do you think Max is healing on the Sabbath? I think he's directly taking on the Pharisees' legalism and and the fact that they're they've gone to the extreme with the with the law of God and and added to it by what is work and what isn't, and they've they've lost the heart of what the of what the Sabbath law was really the commands of God were really all about. Um, and he has many encounters, as you say, with the uh, with the Pharisees and the Sabbath, and they they just don't seem to understand that the the laws that God gave were for our good; they were not intended to make us slaves to them to our detriment. And so, again, I I, I think he's he's getting here to the to the point of helping people understand that. Um, we have to we have to take that law of God and put it into practice as what it is something that is supposed to guide our life and bring blessing under under God rather than you know legalistically being something that's it's that's gonna enslave us and and whatever else that's that's just not the intent behind it so so then picking up on that Jeremy why do you think the Pharisees are just so against Jesus here. You know, they've been against him in the past, but why are they so worked up about him? Probably because of his popularity. Uh, you you get that impression. I, th- I think maybe even in, there's explicit passages in the Gospels that, or, or in the New Testament that say that they were, I, I, I don't have them on the tip of my tongue, but a very strong sense of uh, that they're, they're, everybody is flocking to this man. Everybody is... Uh, listening to him, hanging on him, uh, believing in him, and uh, that means that they are not so much listening to and believing in and uh, uh, following and obeying us. Plus, to add to that, uh, remember the system that Jesus is living in at this time, these guys, these Pharisees, and especially the Sanhedrin, they were the authority. And in the system that they had set up, in order for you to be a rabbi, you had to be credentialed by them. You had to vicar or what we would call vicaring today, but you had to be a student under one of them in order to be credentialed as a rabbi. 
And of course, Jesus didn't do any of that. He shows up on the scene. He, he does not bow to their traditions and their authorities. Um, he's, he's dramatically different than the way he presents. Instead of the, on the one hand, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and on the other, Jesus just says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, and he, and he drops truth on people, right? And, and so again, yeah, people are definitely starting to flock to Jesus because he's so radically different and he does not give them the authority uh, that, you know, the respect that they feel that, that they deserve. And that's why they have their spies tailing him throughout his entire ministry as well. So um, again, Jesus is always teaching those flies on the wall uh, from the Pharisees while he's having these other encounters as well. I, I was very blessed to have a, 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 uh, Bishop, my vicar year, who was really helpful in helping me understand that, and and it really opens up new, new under new revelations as you as you listen to Jesus teach, knowing that those spies from the Pharisees are constantly there. So at the end of the gospel, Jesus says, "For judgment I came into this world, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind." So Max. What does that phrase mean? Yeah, the idea there that, of course, we're all born uh, dead in sin, right? We're born blind. We're born as enemies of God. And through the gospel light that Jesus is the fulfillment of and shines, people that were born blind see. They they see their Savior. They see that God has uh, uh, has forgiven them through the, the work that Messiah came to do for them. And, and I'm right now, I just started uh, last week, actually, I, I'm teaching a Bible study on the parables of Jesus. And we talked about the two uh, aspects of why Jesus taught in parables. He taught in parables to reveal and to conceal, right? For those that, that were, you know, like the, the Pharisee spies that were constantly taking notes about Jesus so that they could uh, call him on the carpet and have something to use against him. Um, people that think that they see like the Pharisees. They they totally have 100% vision of, of what it means to be a child of God. And I do this and, and God is happy with me and, and whatever else. Um, Jesus' purpose in coming to those people is to show them how blind they really are, right? To let them know that although they think they have light and through it life, they, they actually are living a life in darkness, um, so again, the, the, the gospel ministry and how it opens up the eyes of those who are spiritually blind and then how it conceals the truth from those that have been blinded by their own ideas of, of what it means to be a child of God. Uh, definitely alluded to, I believe here. So picking up on that, Jeremy, with that phrase again, for judgment, I came into this world in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind how do those words give us definition and direction for our ministries uh could you ask that question again in different words what uh is it the judgment part you want me to well, focus on or i think it's more i was thinking more of the second part of those who do not see will see those who do see will become blind just how does that give us some direction for our ministries in a high school in a church like ours and so forth i think um well that's one of my favorite experiences in the classroom is when you see the light go on that uh, 
student suddenly gets what you're telling them and and they get excited about it and you get excited that they're that they're finally grasping it uh and just i think understanding that i i think when i first started teaching high school a big problem that i had was that um i assumed that the students in my classroom were going to be thinking and acting like mature adults because they're physically they're very close to being mature adults but uh it a, a lot of my most uh, meaningful interactions that sank in and, and got God's word across to them were ones where we were just we were being really silly and we were being you know doing uh what a lot of people would consider childish games uh in order to help them see and and make the point stick with them so i i guess that would be a a good target to shoot for as a minister of the gospel is not assuming that people just automatically know things and then you help them to see things uh and then and then the ones who act like they are enlightened and god's gift to society um that they need to be reminded of how blind we all are by nature yeah, and we'll go ahead, Max. Well, I, the old adage, right? I, what is our job as ministers of the gospel? It has been summarized as we're here to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? To those that are that are sitting in in affliction because they don't understand and see the the peace that comes with, with Christ, we're we're to open their eyes to see that so that they can have the true comfort that His saving work brings. And yet, for those that that feel they've got it all together and they know exactly what it is and it's all on them, uh, our job is to help them understand that unfortunately they're they're still lost in darkness and they're missing out on that peace that surpasses all understanding. So very much yeah and and here i was thinking in terms of people that was it two sundays ago we had a young lady that showed up for bible study just out of the blue Mm -hmm. and so i went and introduced myself before i went to the caledonia campus and then uh when i was here the next sunday and i was leading the service and she was there and then she said uh she shook my hand because I had made the announcement during communion because you know, we had a baptism that day and so we had a lot of visitors yes. and I said, you know, about closed communion and so she didn't take communion but I said, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And afterwards she said, I want to take communion so I want to take your classes that I had mentioned in my announcement. And then, you know, she's going to go with another friend that just started coming a year ago and then at the Caledonia campus we've got a young couple that are engaged and they said, yeah, we want to take the classes too. And I was mentioning this to my, my wife out of the blue. I wasn't planning on doing this class a month ago and now I've got a class of at least four. And, and I told Shelly, I, I kind of wish that the rest of my members who can see mm-hmm. would be able to open their eyes to see more and be this excited because that same young lady that started the class she texted me Wednesday, uh, Wednesday morning. Can I come to the Wednesday night service? I said absolutely. What time is it? And she was, and she was there, and then her friend was there, and they have to get rides to come. They're not, mm-hmm. uh, they, they don't live with their parents in town. Mm-hmm. They're making a lot of extra effort that, again, those who see uh, aren't always making. It's true. And then the last thing I had, I just want to touch on, uh, is about our reception of spiritual sight. And I think how we can see this in the man's experience. And I touched on that a little bit before. 
the way I see this is how Jesus, uh, how the man's understanding of Jesus progressed uh, from just seeing him as a man uh, in verse 11 to later on as a prophet to later on, because we skip a number of verses in verse 27, he sees him as someone to be followed before the Pharisees as he's testifying to them when they ask, who healed you? He said, I don't know the man, but he must be from God. And then in the end, he sees him as someone to kneel down and worship. And, and it's like, uh, you know, Jeremy said with opening the eyes of these high schoolers mm. is, you know, leading them on that way. And we do that with our kids. We do that with, sometimes it's with those 90 some year olds that are on their deathbed. I was just recounting one the other day where this lady, and it ended up being a, a week before she died. We didn't know that she wasn't in bad health, but she was in her nineties. And then she said, pastor, do you think I've done enough for God to let me into heaven? And I said, sweetheart, oh my goodness. Out of anyone you should know this. I didn't say it like that, but that it broke my heart. Yeah. But it's that it's that opinion legacy. It's the opinion of the law that thinks we have to do something. Or in terms of this, it's that sight that we just start losing. We get scales and cataracts over our eyes. Yeah, definitely. I the the president of my first congregation was a dear dear man to my wife and I. Took us under uh, his wing, a veteran, mature in his faith, just a tremendous, tremendous Christian role model for, for me. And I remember he was in the hospital and it was terminal. We, we, we were finding out that this was, it wasn't going to be long. And I remember visiting Ralph and him saying the same thing. I, I did my devotion. And I said, you know, Ralph, it's not going to be long and you're going to be with Jesus. And he said, boy, I hope so. <laughs> and, and, it, and it really, literally, it brought me to tears right at that bedside. I was like, Ralph, well, what do you mean by that? Of course, you know, and, and well, you know, pastor, we, 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 we hope and we, you know, we do what we do. And, and so again, it was just a reminder to me that this is a man that into his, his eighties had fought the good fight with, with Jesus here on this world, but the devil is merciless. He just will not give up. Right. And so he attacks right to the bitter end. So what a, what a privilege it was for me to be able to, to remind him of those promises of God and the fact that it's, uh, it's finished, right, in Jesus and his saving work. Uh, but again, that that continues to be a temptation that Satan throws at all of us. Anything else you want to bring up, Jeremy, with the gospel? Oh, I had a fellow that I was I was calling on their, their home, a home visit, uh, very similar to that. He, he wasn't a, a leader in the congregation per se, but he and his wife came every week, and I thought, you know, I should really get into their house and visit them. And I... Uh, was uh, in the habit. I tried. This is the one that sticks in my mind. But I was trying to do this with all of my members at that church, and uh, asked him, uh, "Well, how do you know for sure that you're going to heaven one day?" And just see what they answer. And his answer to me was, "Well, I I would say that I've probably done enough bad things in life that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to hell, just with a straight face." And uh, and again, like you said, your heart breaks, mm -hmm. and think you think. Have you have you been listening to anything mm -hmm. in the services that you've been attending? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, th that was a great chance then. Like you said, I I used the evangelism pitch that that we learned at the seminary, God's Great Exchange, and I drew out all the little pictures for him and uh, tried to make sure that he understood before I left that day what the truth is. 
so Jeremy, can you read the epistle lesson for us? Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, and do not participate in fruitless deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things that are done by people in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes things visible. Therefore it is said, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Max, how has our lives as Christians changed now that we are found in the light? The dramatic change that that the light has brought to us, you know, is that above all, we see Christ and we see that he has done everything to rescue us from, as it talks about the fruitless deeds of darkness. You know, we were all born dead in sin, uh, following our master Satan and doing the things that come naturally to, to, to sinful human beings, which is the opposite, of course, of what God calls on us to do. Uh, but now that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, the, the the faith that the Holy Spirit has created through the gospel has turned on the light so that we know that it's not us and anything that we do, uh, but it's what Christ did and what God has gifted to us that has has brought peace and joy that has changed every moment of our life in this world and where we're going You know, when we leave this world has literally brought eternal life to us. There's no bigger transformation that could be held. I mean, light and darkness are the opposite. And we were once darkness headed to damnation. And then Christ was brought into our life and we were completely spun around in the opposite direction and and brought the peace that surpasses all understanding. So, again, the change is just absolutely dramatic. So picking up on that, what is our role as Christians, Jeremy, to be lights in the world or for your kids to be little lightnings in the darkness? Uh, well, not everybody can be a little lightning, uh, but um, it's, it says to expose the deeds uh, of, of the darkness. Um, it, it kind of makes me think, um, I, I often wonder... When Paul says in verse 12, it is shameful even to mention the things that are done by people in secret. Um, and that's a, that's a tough line to walk. It's a very fine line because I know that, um, like, for instance, I, I heard a story about, uh, you're talking about inner city ministry. Right. And uh, I know of a pastor who taught us at the seminary in, in, who had done inner city ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked about this girl who had... Um, come to him and she was she was pregnant and uh she was she was just furious with god because she said how in the world could i be pregnant why would god let me get pregnant and it never even occurred to her that he finally he talked it out with her until he realized oh she didn't realize that the the thing that she was doing with her boyfriend in secret could result in a pregnancy and and so i i think there's a there's a tough line to walk there because you don't want to be from the pulpit or in Bible class just shocking people with offensive topics. But at the same time, if you're not very specific about what exactly is a deed of darkness, how, how, do, you, how do you walk that line of you're supposed to expose, use the light to expose the deeds of darkness, 
but then at the same time, it's shameful even to mention. Uh, and, and with that, too, I think it's, it's careful. Again, listen to your preachers, for our listeners. How do they do this? Because I think we're very careful of not exposing, not so much exposing the, the deeds of darkness that are out in the world, because then we can become Pharisees. Look at people out there. We have to be, it's, we need to know what's out there. And as preachers, we need to let our people know what's out there, but then also apply it. The sin's not out there. The sin's in here, in the walls of our church, in the walls of our school, in the walls of your heart, and then expose those as well. But but that's a a t- difficult line as well, so that, uh, you know, I, I have people that compliment me in my sermons when I talk about things that are outside of the church, and I say, well, I hope you took it to heart that I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Yeah, specific law. Again, I think that's one of the things that's becoming very um, difficult, even in some of our own circles, because of the attitude of you're being judgmental, right? We live in a society that says that if you— it's been very interesting for me with my three children, with my youngest now being a sophomore at college, I can tell the difference from from my youngest to my oldest that is four years older as to how they perceive sin and how they talk about sin. Um, when When we as a family talk about sin and what the right thing to do is in our home, at times our youngest will chastise us for for talking that way, for, you know, for bringing that out. And this is somebody that's been raised in a Christian home and gone to Christian schools. And and now she's even at a, at a Christian college. Um, But you know, there's such a worldly push that you can't call sin, sin. You can't tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong. It's, you know, that's a personal choice, right? And so for us to, to preach specific law takes courage and it's becoming very easy for people to identify the sins in the world, right? The general sins that are out there without really letting the scalpel get get in there and get close to, well, how am I breaking that command of God, right? Yeah, and what you said there about sin, this was in the news this week of uh, because the governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, had talked about you know, outlawing all kinds, well, everything having to do with transgender surgeries. And then the president went on a comedy show, uh, but he was interviewed and he called what they were doing in, in Florida close to sin. He said, in, in my mom's words, that's almost sinning. And so we are at a point where what is sin is called good and what's good is called sin and vice versa. Yeah. So then why should we be patient with those who are still trapped in the darkness, Max? Because as Jesus said, as they nailed him to the cross, they know not what they do, right? Um, again, Jesus Jesus talks about how Satan is the liar and, and the father of lies. These people that are that are stuck in the darkness, that are railing against the light— that are thinking that what they have done is good enough if there is a God to make them okay before him. They, they've been sold a, a bill of goods by the, the biggest con men ever, right? Uh, and they don't know uh, what they're missing out on, the peace that surpasses all understanding, uh, that we are so privileged to have in our, in our life. And so we need to be patient with them and understand that 
there but by the grace of God go I. We have exactly the same cancer living inside of us as is living inside of them. Only by God's amazing grace and through the gospel uh, gift of faith that that the Lord has made ours, um, we have that cancer in remission to some degree, if you would say, uh, it, it, it's, it's not going to destroy us eternally. It's, it's, it's going to do damage on us, but, uh, we have the, the one who has conquered sin, uh, who has, has prepared a place for us in heaven. So I think we have to, we have to understand that, uh, these people, you know, they need someone to help them understand what, what's going on in their heart and life because they're in the darkness. They're blind to it. They have no idea. When I was studying this, I was thinking of uh, a couple of years ago that our family would go hiking and camping and biking on the Elroy Sparta Trail. Uh, And there's three tunnels from where we would camp, and the third tunnel is like three quarters of a mile. So we would all have headlamps on our helmets, and then you'd you'd be walking your bike through there because it's not really safe to be biking in the darkness unless... You have a lot of likes like like I do when I'm biking in the dark. But there, the kids thought it was kind of funny, and it was fun, to take turn the headlamps off, and then you're in the middle, and it's pitch dark. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they didn't scare anyone. They threatened to scare other people as they're walking by. But the thing is, is when you're in the middle there, and just imagine now if the tunnel went three-quarters of a mile both in all four directions, and then you have no idea which way you're going. And if you start going one way and you start drifting a little bit, you think you're going to the opposite direction. You just turn a little bit, you're totally lost. And so you may be going closer to the light, just like with people as we're sharing the gospel with them, but you have to be patient, like you were saying, because they are lost is lost. Yeah. And you know, even a little lost is still lost. Yeah, I've got a friend who uh, has learned how to be a pilot. And he's now in the process of trying to get his instrument rating for being a pilot. And he said that his instructor, and again, I've heard this story before from others, that so many people, when they fly by just instruments for the first time, they go into clouds, right? And they they start freaking out and they don't trust the instruments and they end up coming out of the cloud flying upside down. Because they get so turned around, right? Hmm. That and that's what's going on in these people's hearts and lives. The, the the darkness is is consumed them, and and so it's not surprising that they're living their life in complete violation and and opposition to to what God says is going to bring peace and happiness to them. You know, they're looking for for happiness and love and all these things in all the wrong places, but. That's all they have. They don't have anything different to, to go by. Yeah, and I was thinking with that same illustration, you know, last week we had uh, Jeremy's son Gabe on. We were talking about uh, being a lifeguard. You know, I've heard the same thing about if you're down in the ocean enough that you don't know which direction is up. Mm-hmm. You know, just I can't even begin to imagine. You should just float up. But, you know, if something's pulling you down, you don't know if you're swimming down, sideways, up. So the last question I have, Jeremy, is what does Paul mean when he says, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord? I think uh, I, I'm kind of interested to know why the translation choice of try, uh, because I, I think what Paul is saying here is that you can know God's will. I, I think there's there's certainly the hidden aspects of God's will that we say, well, what does God have in store? We don't know. 
Uh, God's will could be a lot of different things. But then when it comes to stuff that he has written and, and said to us in his word, you can figure that out. You can learn that. You can uh, find, and then and then specifically, how it applies in my life, that there's not just multiple different ways that uh, you can uh, redefine marriage, for example. Uh, there's there's not just multiple different ways that you can define whose property belongs to whom. Uh, there's, there's a God-pleasing way, and uh, there may be several God-pleasing ways, but uh, don't just say, uh, well, I, I'm, I was blind, and, and we still don't have a very clear picture on what the future holds, so therefore, who really knows what God wants me to do? No, you can, you can figure out pretty easily. Um, it it kind of makes me think a little bit this might be a good response to the um, WWJD bracelets. That, uh, the, and, and the big problem with WWJD is the second W, would. It, the would is a subjunctive. It's, it's an iffy thing like, like, well, maybe just take your best guess at what Jesus would do and uh, whatever you come up with is the right answer. No, first of all, I like the bracelets that say, uh, I, well, I'm not going to rattle off the letters because that would take too long for me to think of, but it's uh, you can't do what Jesus did. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so first of all, that's important to remember. And second of all, um, you can know what... Jesus wants for your life. Yeah. yeah, I had written down for my answer too of it's not that difficult to know God's will hmm. and then to you know figure out God's will and then live by it. And that's one of the things we've talked about like with a call and so forth is it's one of the things that kind of bothers me when, when people will say in their call letter, well, you know, it's the Lord's will I stay here. Well, it could just be that the Lord's will is for you to come here or whatever. Or, or it's both. It's both. It's, yeah, I always tell people, uh, God's going to put the right person in the right place at the right time. And uh, so if you stay there and do God's will there, that's what God's will is. If you if you come here, accept the call, that's God's will too, either way. And uh, you know, sometimes it, it is difficult to figure out, well, if we apply this portion of God's word or this commandment with this command and this will— then it may be more difficult and you're trying to figure it out, but you know what God's will is. Now you're trying to, to live according to it, living in the light, not in the darkness. Anything else you guys want to bring up? All right. Uh, so this is Michael Zarling with Max Newman. And like a lightning bolt from the blue, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>